Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's something One trailer Bravo, Lakesford in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now, let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? Fantastic. This week we take on the far aim a little bit and bring some regulations to the world, but not in the sense of we're going to teach the regulations. We want to talk about making better pilots. So this week's all about pre-flight action, 91-103. I'm sure CFIs and students out there have all been through the reg, and the common, I guess, acronym that people use is PAVE. The FAA has some good documents on it, but I think today we want to talk about why we, we all think through PAVE and probably use it before we get in a plane, what are some of the common pitfalls that we don't do well or maybe you don't see people doing perfectly on check rides or in your training with other applicants, not applicants, but the people that you might be teaching how to fly as a CFI? What, what should we maybe focus on a little bit more that we don't focus on good enough? Maybe it's some of these things that are CFI said, on your check ride, do this, but we really should be doing it all the time right right. um so let's just jump right into pave and start talking about some of those things and uh if you have thoughts or comments out there in the uh podcast world give us a give us an email or a a comment on facebook and we will incorporate your conversation so with that pave let's talk about the pilot what 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 are some of the things that we probably regularly do and or think about, but maybe uh, we don't do a good enough job of preparing for as it is with the flight. And I, I jokingly asked you before we, we talked, how many people do you think really know the length of a runway at a remote airport that they've never been to before? Uh, yeah. But it's in a big city uh, right. with a tower. Right. Do you think we all just maybe assume it's bigger, big enough, wide enough, Yeah. and we don't really know? Yeah, if you 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 know the airlines go in there. Well, it's it's big enough for me. It's good enough for me. So technically, that doesn't meet the requirements. As you need to check runway lengths, and and you just you need to you need to be aware of that. But um, I think as far as the you know when when we th- when I think of pre-flight, or I think when most people think of pre-flight, they think of going around and walking around an airplane and and making sure the airplane is ready to go. But, um, you know, there's three other words in the letter in the word PAVE. And uh, the first one is pilot. So, I mean, the first thing that we need to think about uh, when we're getting ready to go fly is the pilot. Am I ready to go? Do, do I have everything that I need to go? Um, I see a lot of people that um, keep their, you know, me personally. And, and again, we're going to talk about techniques, maybe how how everybody does it. But... I personally keep my pilot documents, my my medical, my pilot certificates, and and my radio license. I keep that in my wallet. Okay. Um, now, have I ever gone and flown an airplane without my wallet? I don't think so. Um, you know, it. I guess it's possible, but you know, my wallet is usually in my back pocket. I, a lot of pilots keep their documents in a flight bag, and that's fine. Uh, as long as your flight bag is always with you when you fly. One thing I see with private pilot applicants, when I ask to see their documents, one document that I uh, check is their medical. And a lot of times their medical 
is taped into their logbook. And at, at the end of the check ride, I'll have a discussion with, with the applicant. Hopefully the, the um, check ride has been satisfactory. So this person is now a private pilot. I will, I will comment to them because th- during the, the ground portion of the check ride, I will ask them if their logbook is required to be with them when they ac- exercise the privileges of a private pilot. And, and the correct answer is no, your logbook does not to be, need to be with you. But if you're going to choose to, you know, affix your medical to your logbook, well, you got to have the medical. And if it's stuck in your logbook, well, then you got to have your logbook. And a lot of pilots will say, well, I'm never, you know, I'm never going to fly without my logbook. Um, And I said, well, that's fine. But I I think the logbook is something, at least for me, I like to keep my log, well, my logbook at home. Of course, the, my logbooks are electronic now, so they're they're on my iPad and it's it's in the cloud. It's on my, I can access it any way I want to now. So it's a little bit of a different world. But we're assuming back in the days of a, a paper logbook, which most people still uh, use at least for their private pilot training. But um, you know, suppose you now have your private pilot certificate, and you're out, and you um, you drive by the airport, and you stop by the flight school, and they say, "Hey, we got this airplane. We need to ferry from uh, here to the airport, forty miles away. You think you could do that?" And uh, you say, yeah, "Yeah, of course I can do that." Well, your logbook's at home, your medical's at home, so legally you can't do it. So, might be a consideration. Um, you know, and, and again, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. It's it's how I do it. It works for me. Um, but just be aware of that. I mean, you as the pilot, you need to have the required documents with you. And, of course, um, you know, you need to be healthy in the right state of mind, all that, that sort of stuff. Yeah, I'm a flight bag guy. I keep my medical and my certificates in my flight bag. Um, obviously, my driver's license is in my wallet. And I just have a a pattern that I've created or a technique I've created over time where as soon as I put my pull my headset out of my flight bags headset bag I put my wallet and keys in that because I want those to come right out whenever I get to my destination as well um, that way it's kind of a check for me that I've got my wallet driver's license and then I've got my other stuff in my flight bag but we've all been there and seen it probably where that flight bag was cleaned out or something was moved and you might lose that. So if you're that kind of a, if you use that technique, um, we need to uh, think about where we, where we, how often we check those documents, make sure they're with us as well. Of course, I think we all go through the I'm safe stuff, at least on a somewhat regular basis. I guarantee you everybody that meets you and check ride, they've got it written out, probably ready to go. They talk through all of it. Um, one thing that came up recently, someone that was on their day off told me they couldn't fly. It was a student, meaning a commercial student or whatever, cause they had just taken Claritin or something, right? Well, shockingly enough, Claritin, some of this, these, uh, allergy medicines are on the 24 hour list or 48 hour list yes. that we probably aren't all cognizantly aware of if we're just going to take a few laps in the pattern. But that could be a big, big deal if you're wanting to be a professional pilot and make a mistake like that. So yeah, it's not just have I drank or have I done something that alters my state of mind. It could be something that's on the list uh, that could be a bad thing that could could come back to haunt you. Um, so be cognizant of those things. If you have a trip, don't, don't take something that might make your nose stop uh, running, if you know what I mean. Right. 
physical condition more so again sleep those sorts of things i think we go i think that's a pretty good thing that we go through i think it's the the knowledge around the flight that we get a little uh lazy is the word that comes to mind i'm not sure that word's the right one but the preparation around that stuff um it's i guess the combination of the environment and the airports that i'm thinking about right it's not so much the destination because we 99 percent of the time get to that destination it's the what about some of the alternate stuff? And we're in Houston. I fly to Austin a lot. I think of Brenham and Giddings is kind of my two intermediate spots. And I know I can land a Cessna there, but what if I'm in the twin? Can I land at both those places? Uh, I know I can at Brenham, but I'm not really sure I've checked Giddings in a long time. And it's not that I might not be able to land there, but can I take off from there? Right. right. I don't know what my... I'd have to go through and do some work to make sure I knew my stopping distance and that airport's runway length. Yeah. What if one of those, both those airports have single runways. What if I'm in Austin? Austin's got two runways. One's big, one's small. The small one's not always open, but what if the big one was closed and the small one was open? Could I get out of there in the twin? I'm going to bet I probably couldn't. It's some of those things that I think we probably take for granted in yeah. this, in this light, light aircraft world that I don't think you have the luxury of doing in your major aircraft world. I'm sure dispatch is helping you find these things, but there's some real places we could get pinned in. I, I would think in some of that planning for the airport environment and the, the things that I need to be thinking about for my flight. Yeah. And as I look at FAR uh, 91, one Oh three, there are, there are two letters, there's a and B. And I think what, we got to be careful of is if, if I'm looking at a um, and I'm quoting from the regulation right here, it says for a flight under IFR, I think a lot of people quit reading right there say, okay, I'm, I'm taking a VFR flight to new Orleans today. Okay. Well, a doesn't apply to me because it starts with for a flight under IFR, but if you keep reading, there's no comma. So just, just keep reading. It says for a flight under IFR or a flight and not in the vicinity of an airport. Oh, geez. Well, that's me. I'm going Can to Can you New define Orleans. vicinity for me? Ah. Is that a 50 foot circle? Is that a five mile circle? Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that, but I would say I would go with about a five mile circle. Um, but anyway, anything outside the pattern would probably be what I think of. Yeah, exactly. And it's going to be susceptible to whatever the situation happens. Right, right. When it happens. So I would just say anywhere you're outside that pattern, yeah. you probably ought to take heed to yeah. this one. So basically it says uh, for flight under IFR, flight not in the vicinity of an airport, weather reports and forecasts, fuel requirements, alternatives available if the planned flight cannot be completed, and any known traffic delays of which the pilot in command has been advised by ATC. So that's, boy, that's an open book. It says alter, alternatives available. So as I, as I think of a flight from here to New Orleans, I'm thinking, well, I got Beaumont, I've got Lake Charles, I got Lafayette, I got Baton Rouge, and I've got New Orleans. Okay. Those are my alternatives. And, and I'm not looking at a map. I'm just, I'm just, I, uh, those are the cities. You've made the drive, right. too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, what if the Beaumont Airport is closed? What if Lake Charles is closed? Um, you know, th those are things that I need to be aware of. Uh, but, uh, those are both close to water, maybe not right on the water, too, but you could think that maybe more inland we would have less moisture in the air. Right. Um, giving me a better opportunity if something really bad happened. Yeah. So how far... How far in that planning do I go north? 
Yeah. I bet if I run out of fuel and don't get to an alternate, the FAA is going to have a problem if I don't know about a whole bunch of them, right? I mean, it, and it, and you, we could always be worst case scenario, but I bet we should probably plan for something that's not in these major cities right on the coast. Right. Um, beyond exactly. that. For sure. I, I think what's funny is that bullet, A, 91103A, pretty much means you have to know everything possibly that could happen and your plan of action to solve for anything that could possibly happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are the runway lights inoperative? Can you even read the notum that that talks about runway lights being inoperative? We just talked about a local airport here that, that has the runway lights out, and, uh, you know, the, the, the four-letter code for the runway lights, um, it's R-E-D-L, runway edge lights. Um, I I think on the surface, if most people would look at that and go, "Gee, well, I don't I don't need a rental. What's a rental? I don't know." Well, don't and know. even bigger on that airport and that notum is it's old. Uh, it's in its sixty fifth day. Right. So if you if you think about really what the world's doing now, if they look in for flight and there's four notums for that airport, and the newest one is obstruction two miles southeast of the field for whatever reason without a light on it. And then I look down, I read two more and I get to this older one that's 63 days old and it says, uh, rattle out, rattle in op. I'm probably not going to pay much attention to it. Right. Well, that's probably a really big problem if you're planning on landing at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and this airport happens to be in a really remote part of Houston that does yeah. not have a lot of, area lights around you uh, right. that that would help light that place up at yeah. all yeah and if you're using it as an alternate i mean we're, we are talking about a perfect storm here where multiple things go wrong but if you are use you are planning to land there because of low oil pressure and you you're trying to find the airport and you go to or, or let's say you're you're landing there for an electrical problem you you've lost your electrical system well guess what you don't have a landing light yep well, you say we talk about this one because it's it's an easy example to say, well, what if, what if, what if? But how many of us really are reading all the notums? I mean, even from here to Austin, if I read every notum, I probably would never get to Austin because there's hundreds of notums right. across every airport, across every, you know, the little pack circle in flight, 20 miles either side of your center line, I think is what it is. Right. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. Lots of obstructions lights out everything else yeah um but i would even say does that make us numb to some of the real critical things like yeah i might go to this airport at 10 p.m yeah i might need to look up what rental is right um we talked about it the notums the notums aren't the greatest thing in the world because we think they were designed for the teletype days and we're way past that but right man we're not there yet so they don't spell it out but it will be nice once we get to a point where that just says runway edge lights and this is a great segue to, segue to a future episode. You you teed this up for me, Bobby. I'm just gonna I'm gonna take this opportunity to tell someone about uh, tell our listeners about a future guest, uh, Robert Sumwalt, who is the chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board, has agreed to be a guest on our our show. He's retiring in five days, so we're gonna we're gonna get him as a guest um, probably sometime in July and. Uh, maybe late July, um, he'll be a guest on our episode. So the the current NTSB chairman, 
we'll be um, we'll be on behind the props. So stay tuned. That's going to be a great conversation, and I have a feeling while he's done a lot of great work, he's going to have a lot of things that he wish he could have got done and things that he wants to hear from aviators as well. So if you have a question you want us to ask Mr. NTSB, so, yeah. let us know, and we will get the question on the list to ask him for sure. And I bring that up because I know that's one of the things that, that was on his to-do list when he took over as the chairman was to – clean up the way NOTAMs are um, sent out to pilots um, because they're, they're, they're hard to understand. And, and I, I don't, and you know, why they can't just be in plain language, I don't know. But anyway, maybe he can talk to us about that. So we, we got digressed off the aircraft a little bit, but um, so we did pilot, let's talk aircraft. Um, I think it, I think we all in training for sure, we all make some assumptions around runway length, and those are probably good. We probably need a thousand feet to take off. We probably need a thousand, fifteen hundred feet to land. Um, in reality, less than that, but those are probably our safer, comfortable numbers. And let's be honest: there's not too many paved runways around the United States that are shorter than either one of those numbers. Right. So we probably get lulled into a sense of. Uh, security that they're going to be long enough and wide enough for our, our needs. But crosswinds and other things come into play there that make me as a flight school owner think, man, I hope we're not just making that assumption every time we go. Right. And that we we really are not just on check ride day checking all those airport runway links, et cetera, but we're checking it more more for our safety and our being a great pilot than we are just for that one day. The, the fuel becomes a big one, and I, I know we've talked about this a couple of times, but we really don't manage fuel in a training environment too terribly often either. Uh, we have that one big practical test day that we probably do a cross-country plan and plan fuel and move weight in or out, et cetera. But once you get that private certificate, you're probably taking passengers, you're probably going farther, you probably need to manage full fuel in a different way both daytime and nighttime and you you may have you may know the regs you may have your own personal minimums um but i think it's really important that we understand what that means when things don't go right um i had a guy just yesterday was supposed to be teaching a course at at this school and showed up 12 minutes late and was in a hurry trying to get all the students were here all 12 students were here um and he said atc wouldn't let him back in you know He's, he's a great pilot. It wasn't that he planned to be late. It wasn't that he wasn't thinking it's possible that he could be late. But there's a real chance that you might get held out of an airport. 12 minutes doesn't seem like much, but when does 12 become 30? And when does 30 become the regulation minimums? And if I thought 30 and I'm at 12, I'm freaking out. Right. You you joke there's three critical points, three critical things you must have in a flight. Those three things, again, are? Actually, I've changed this, Bobby. I used to use three. I've changed it to five. Okay. Now, there's five critical things that you got to have on a flight. And the first one is fuel. The second one is fuel. The third one is fuel. The Can fourth, I guess fourth? Yeah. <laughs> fuel? Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you see the theme here. Yeah. You see the theme here. Um, you know, I, I had a, a gentleman on a check ride uh, just a few, several, well, I don't know, it was about three weeks ago. And uh, he he was doing a very, very nice job. And uh, we were coming back to this airport to do the landings. 
and there happened to be a rain shower right smack dab over this airport. And um, I, I looked over at him, and I said, well, what do you think? What do you want to do? And um, he went through a little bit of a, a mini panic attack, and um, then he said, well, let's either go to Navasota or Conroe. I said, great idea. Fairly so, close, 10, yeah. 10, 20 miles yeah. away. They're probably two of the closest airports. And his reasoning was he thought this storm was moving south, so he wanted airports that were north. And uh, so we ended up going to Conroe. We did um, two or three landings there. By then, we saw that the weather had moved out of hooks, and then we came back over here. And, um, you know, jokingly in, in the debrief, we I, I used the, the analogy of, okay, you walk up to the food court at the, the mall, and you wanted to get pizza, but the pizza place is closed so what do you got to do well you got to go next door and get chicken you know or or get a burger so so at the end i asked him i said well what do you think of the check ride he says i I realized that if i can't get pizza i can get chicken there you go you know there are alternatives so um just but did he really know the runway link that's the question (laughs) well (laughs) It's a big uh, tower airport, yeah. so it was probably yeah. safe. Yeah. Uh, but I do think I go back to, you know, I, I said this many times, but I became a much better pilot when I got my multi-engine rating because there are other things you think about. The the safety at a few segments of flight are, are very different than they are in a single-engine aircraft, and it made me a much better thinker of how to prepare and how to execute a, a flight. But that runway length is such a different thing in a twin-engine than it is in a single-engine um, how I load that aircraft, what I need to do to stop that aircraft just becomes very different. Um, what about equipment? We, we, we were going to do a whole show called, can I go without this? But that's in future weeks, but it is about inoperative equipment. But would you go with one radio instead of two? Probably, especially if it's a local flight, I'm going to stay in the pattern. It's probably no big deal. Right. Um, what about, we, we we talk about lights a lot. What if the green nav light was out, Wally? What am I what is my thought process supposed to be? And do you think we're all doing the right things? Yeah, I don't I don't know. You know, first of all, um, you know, if it is a day flight, uh how many people are actually um checking the lights? I mean it is in the in the pre flight checklist, so hopefully everybody is. Um but when you get into it, do we need the nav lights? Do we need the position lights for a day flight? And the answer is no, we don't. But there's a little bit more to it. We can't just um, say, oh, gee, the, the green nav light on the right wing tip is not working. Um, uh, it's, it's daytime. We're good to go. Um, there's, there's more to it. That, that light needs to be disabled. And uh, because, you know, we we all make the assumption that we've got a burned out light bulb and it's not that big a deal. But there could be a short in that light bulb um, and and that wire going out of that light bulb goes through the wing and that's where the fuel tank is. And so that may not um, be the most ideal situation. So there is a little bit more to just going with inoperative equipment. Um, and, you know, going back to the radio, I mean, I think we need to. We need to figure out, well, why is this number two radio not working? Uh, do we have a, a bigger electrical problem? 
Um, in all likelihood, the radio just is not working. The radio's broken. Right. You know, you, you turn your TV on and it doesn't come on in your house. Do you, do, do you immediately think, oh, boy, I have an electrical problem with my house? No, you, you think that the TV is broken. And you probably do some troubleshooting. Maybe you plug something into the same outlet and see if it works. And if it does work, uh, then, then you've kind of eliminated the electrical problem aspect of your house. So you, you think the TV is not working. So same thing with the radio. Um, uh, you know, determine why it's not working. Um, but there are, you know, we are able to go with inoperative equipment. And that's that's addressed in the regulations as well. I had a flight instructor not recently, thank goodness, but it's been a, been a year or so that uh, ended up not going on a flight because the fire extinguisher was outside the green, and said that you know that was broken equipment. And they didn't want to fly a plane with broken equipment. If you are a potential flight instructor and that's your personal minimums, you're not going to fly very much because right. there's stuff like that that's always going to be. Uh, somewhat out of whack. You just have to learn how to manage it and how to do it the right way, whether or not you placard it. Um, and then there are some things you can help fly schools and mechanics hold you, hold the system accountable to where if a DME is out and it's marked inoperative, that it's supposed to be removed to the next 100 hour if it's not going to be repaired. But DME, while it might be helpful and beneficial and required for some approaches, it's not required to take off in that aircraft and fly in the pattern. So, right. Um, know what you need to know and hopefully our future episode will help all of you out there know more of what you can go without and what you can't go without part of the aircraft or part of the pre-flight planning for me at the aircraft when i'm thinking about the aircraft do i have all the gear and stuff i need or want in that aircraft right and technique for sure for me it is for flight for me it is a big ipad that's in my flight bag a little ipad on my knee and my iPhone, all fully charged, all close by, all with my four flight subscription on them. But we need to have other things, and I've been coached by different flight instructors. You know, the airport diagram is something that is is important, and I probably have heard someone say, "For your check ride, make sure you have one out." But I am I'm pretty pretty staunch on this one around this flight school. Not only do you need to have it out, you need to have it in front of you. You need to mark it. You need to listen to the ATIS, highlight what's not open, what has been closed, where the hot spots are. How am I going to navigate through those hot spots on the ground? Um, I think expectation bias becomes a big problem around here, where people expect to go to the Delta ramp via Juliet Echo Papa, because we hear that all the time. For every, if you turn on ground right now, you're going to hear that a thousand times today. Um, but it is possible that the winds change and you go a different place. And I think we got to have that taxi diagram out. Do you do you see strengths or weaknesses around taxi diagrams? Yeah, that is required in the ACS um, for private. It's spelled out for private and for commercial. Um, it basically, and I'm paraphrasing here. I don't have it right in front of me. It basically says that if a taxi diagram is available, you will use it. And you can't use it if you don't have it displayed. <laughs> I mean, to say, well, it's available. And I, I have had applicants tell me, well, I had it available, I just wasn't using it. And I said, well, that doesn't meet the requirements. I'm sorry that we're having the conversation that we're having. And I, I will tell you, I had a young man um, uh, take off from 
wrong intersection or, or begin a takeoff roll on a wrong intersection and we taxi down, we applied pull, pull power and I said, okay, let's pull the power back and taxi back. And it didn't, didn't end the way I wanted it or he wanted it. So, um, had he had the taxi diagram out, I think things would have been differently. And I think this is one thing that the CF, I mean, the CFIs are used to this airport. They know where the, 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 they know the, the, they know the airport. They know it by, by memory. They don't, I'm not going to say they don't need it because they do need it. Um, I've been flying in and out of Houston Intercontinental Airport professionally for um, 34 years. And I can honestly say I don't think I have ever taxied in or out of Intercontinental Airport without the taxi diagram displayed. And I expect my first officer to have it out as well. And if we have a third pilot, I expect uh, that third pilot to have it out as well. So three of us, uh, triple redundancy. Um, so if, you know, if, if instructors are out there and, and not using it, well, shame on you. You should be, you should be mentoring your, your students because by you not using it, uh, a taxi diagram, you, whether you know it or not, you're telling your student that when they grow up and get to be real pilots, they don't need to use it either. Mm-hmm. And, and they do need to use it. Yeah. And you know, there is this cool factor to what we do, right? So if, if I'm, if I'm seeing my CFI, who's got, I'm assuming thousand more hours than me and they're using it at 20 hours is telling me it's probably a pretty good idea that I should be using it too because I'm always chasing or I felt like and I feel like students are always chasing someone who's just ahead of them right, right. in their aviation career right and if all of us that were just ahead of everybody behind us were using our taxi diagrams I think naturally all those others around us will use it as well yeah uh, and it's going to make us safer I, I use the story that I think we may have told in the past, but yesterday I was talking to someone and said, you know what? We never hear about the accidents or the incidents that didn't happen because someone was doing the right thing. We always hear about the ones that did happen because something didn't. I think Paul Craig talked about it. Right. I think we've, we've, we've discussed it, but recently a, a little plane, uh, a plane of mine had a boo-boo because someone didn't do the right things and it got bent uh, and it's going to get fixed and it's not the end of the world. Nobody got hurt, but it could. It was so easily avoidable that you just sit back and you go, "Golly, how easily was this to be avoided?" Um, and it was. It was just a, a, a moment in time where they thought they, they could handle it and solve it without doing the exact right thing. Right. Well, every time a plane didn't get bent, they did do the right thing, and we never hear about it. We never dwell on it. But the one time, this one time that it didn't, it got bent, and it's easy to point to that and say it got bent. Think about that with a taxi diagram. Something happens and you have it in your hand. We never hear about the taxis that went great. Right. But when two planes nose touch at an international airport somewhere in this country, what what is it? It's all over Google. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know, two planes crash on the ground, you know. Yep. We hear about those, right? It's yeah. probably a taxi diagram problem. Right. So right. use it. Um, let's skip to environment. Um Airport conditions, we talked about runways, et cetera, some of that stuff. Crosswinds are important. Controlled, uncontrolled are important. I think most of that big stuff we get, I think we get a lot of that. I think we get a lot of weather. If I had a question about weather, it's probably how far are we looking. Um, I think we talk about uh, visibility more than we talk cloud bases just between the two of us. And 
visibility is a big one. And, and how do I get to good visibility? Which way am I going to try and navigate or get to? Again, electrical failure in IMC is a very dangerous situation. I probably want to see the ground as fast as I can yeah. safely. Yeah. So if it was clear right behind me, I need to go back. If it's clear east of me, I need to go right, assuming I'm going north. Um, I need to I need to have some situational awareness of that about that stuff. And I'm not I'm not sure we're lazy in that respect, but I just think you gotta be on your A game. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, I kinda use a little bit of a sports analogy. If if you're if you're playing football and uh you're a quarterback um, I'll bet you Tom Brady knows where the defensive backs or, or, or who the defensive backs are, and he knows the weak length. He knows that the, the cornerback over on his left side is uh, coming off a hamstring injury. So he's going to pick on him. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we're, you know, he's going he's gonna to go over there. Okay, that's where the good weather is. The guy might be uncovered over on that side. So, you know, when when you're when you're getting your your weather briefing, uh, back up, back up, and try to get a big picture. Where is the high pressure system? If I'm flying a flight from, uh, you know, El Paso to Houston, and I know I got high pressure over Oklahoma, and I get in a bad situation, well, I'm turning left. I'm I'm heading toward Oklahoma, and and what I the the the, the the situation I'm talking about is an electrical failure because an electrical failure, not only can you not communicate, but you can't navigate. Yeah, that's so a big deal. You're in a, you're in a tough situation. So no, no, try to know where the good weather is. Yeah. And so I don't think it's just where the storms are, or where convection is. I think we, the further, the further you go in your aviation career, the further you're going to make flights, the longer they're going to be, the more weather you'll transition, the more elevation you'll transition. And I think, we just got to be thinking of those things. I, I, I don't think about ice ever. Right. I don't fly in the cold ever. Uh, I don't fly at altitude where there's freezing ever. Um, but this past year we had a pretty good freeze down here. Lots of snow, lots of, lots of moisture that was frozen in the, uh, atmosphere. And I just don't think that's something that people in Houston think about regularly, but I bet people that train in Chicago, they're pretty good with knowing icing levels and, what the moisture visible where visible moisture is for sure yeah we we did um get slapped around a little bit with the ice storm this past winter and we were finding things um you know i was out trying to do some cross-country flying with some some um younger pilots and uh we were finding a lot of airports were just closed yeah because there was snow on the runway they didn't have any way to remove them a lot of airports still have fbos that are closed because of all the water damage from frozen pipes and uh it's it it's something that we don't think about on a regular basis but goes back to notums and those things that would be abnormalities that we don't normally interact with and as we wrap let's talk external pressures i think we all know them we might not have all experienced them but i think i watch it happen in real time around here all the time wally and i feel for these students that need to get something finished so that they can meet you and take a check ride but it's so scary sometimes to watch people make decisions based on these external pressures. Just within the last 24 hours, I had to talk someone out of flying at night. Uh, Instrument-rated student pilot working on commercial who probably has 200-plus hours 
probably not instrument current, meaning they don't have those approaches. We, we talk about this. We go to private. We do instrument. We don't do any instrument flying while we're working on commercial. Right. And here we are. They hadn't flown at night in six months, and they wanted to take my plane up to get night current. While that's legal, and the far aims say you can fly without passengers to get current again, it's not the best decision and the decision was being driven around point two of nighttime required for the commercial check ride that they weren't planning on taking for another 30 days, right? It just seems like they create that. We create that external pressure of it has to be done now. Why not incorporate that in something else with an instructor? It's going to be a different sight picture. It's going to be a different environment. What if something happens? Are you really ready for that? Right. Um it's just it blows my mind sometimes. It also crosswinds. Customers around here need point two cross country before they can get done. They didn't plan correctly, but they need that point two, which means that's gonna be more of a one point five hour flight. Right. Man, we can't just squeeze that in somewhere, right? Right. Um right. and they're solo private students. There's so much that could go wrong that they really need to make good decisions. And yeah. that external pressure of check ride or getting that next tick box or whatever that might be, really is prevalent around here on a regular basis. And yeah. uh, I, I ask everyone to be cautious. And and I think every flight, I, I would say almost every flight, has some external pressures. Um, you know, unless you're just... Um, I mean, there have been times where I've been at my hangar with no intention of flying, and I just kind of look around and go, well, geez, the weather's really nice. I think I'll go... Uh, fly a little bit. Uh, I guess you could say in in that situation there are not really a whole lot of external pressures, but most of us are flying uh, to get somewhere, you know, and uh, whether it be uh, you're coming in and, and, um, you know, this is the only time that you and your instructor and the weather and the airplane could all get together. I mean, that's an external pressure right there. Um, So uh, every flight has external pressures. We're not just talking about... um, you know, we've got to get out of here in a hurry because we have to beat the weather system that's moving in or the weather that's moving into our de- destination. Um, we've used the the example of uh, flying someone to a funeral or, or you're flying your um, girlfriend somewhere at, for a photo op to propose to her um, and and you've got the photographer all set up and, and, and all the stars are aligning. Yeah, those are external pressures. So, Even one less than that, I had a friend who brought their nephew, of all things, to do a discovery flight. Really just fly around. They wanted to learn how to fly and they wanted to experience it first. Really good friend. They drove from Sugarland, which again, that's no small drive. That's an hour plus drive. And so they get here and the clouds, we were talking and it's like, look, the clouds are kind of low. I'm not sure how good a day it's going to be to fly. They wanted to chance it. They come up here. It's 1,500 feet. We can't yet. Yeah. Can we legally fly? Yeah. Is it a good day to discover flight? No. What happens if the clouds come down lower? It's a fall day. It's very likely. And we did that twice. And I'll tell you, the second time, the pressure to get in the air for me, them making the drive twice, was was pretty intense. Right, And I just ended up sticking to my guns and saying no, and they drove home. Actually, I think that day we did a little bit in the sim just to just to do a little bit of something. But uh, the, the external pressures are real. Uh, there's no question. And they don't always feel as real as they are in real time. Right. right. They don't right. seem like that big of a deal. Yeah. But those are where 
the chain of events, that first one is the first of many that become, unfortunately, really bad accidents for some people. And even on check rides, I, I will have applicants where, um, you know, the, the weather is supposed to be well within our, our margins at the time that we're going to go fly. And we get ready to go fly, and it's, the weather isn't quite right. And a lot of time the applicant will look at me and he'll say, well, when could you finish this check ride? And I will say, don't, don't factor that one bit into your decision, whether we're going to go fly or not. That should not be part of the decision. Talk making. about external pressures. Yeah. There. Yeah. Because if I say it's going to be six weeks there, they may be, may be more likely to push Try the it. envelope. Try okay, it. Well, let's yeah. see if we can get this done. Whereas if I say I can get you in tomorrow afternoon. Okay. Well, um, now, if I can get them in tomorrow afternoon, I'll, I'll usually say that, and it it alleviates a little bit of the pressure from for them. But um, um, yeah, external pressures are huge. So, a very short paragraph in a very big book, ninety one one hundred three pre flight action, uh, just produced a forty minute podcast that. Uh, we barely scratched the surface on all the things that a pilot should be responsible for and doing to make sure that they've covered their responsibilities as PIC for a flight. Uh, so try not to be lazy. Try to have a good plan. Try to get better with your plan. Try to demonstrate professional pilot things in front of other pilots like taxi diagrams, etc., to make other pilots better. That's what we try to do here. As always, fly safe and stay behind the prop. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe. <laughs>